1: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's great to have you with us today. Today we're bringing you a very unusual Jack London story. It's a combination dystopian science fiction story, which was first published by McClure's Magazine in 1910. Here's the plot. Under the influence of Japan, China modernizes, coming out of its long slumber in the 1910s through 1922 when it finally boots out Japan as well as Western influences and annexes the Japanese possessions of Korea, Taiwan, Manchuria, and oil-rich French Indochina, which enrages France, which attempts to blockade China with no success, and then sends in an army, which is swallowed up to the last man. By 1975, China's population exceeds that of the modernized world. Europe and America then wage war against China, with America launching biological warfare against China, which eventually devastates the country and its population. By the 1980s, Germany and France are fighting over Alsace-Lorraine. As we all know, London's prediction of biological warfare soon came true when Germany employed mustard gas against the Allies in World War One. Then eerily again in 2019, when a U.S.-funded lab in Wuhan, China leaked Purposefully or not, COVID 19 to the dismay of the world and the world's economy, while experimenting with the means of biological warfare. London also predicted a war between Germany and France in the 1980s, actually overshooting two world wars involving Germany's invasion of France, but in 1914 and 1939. But still, his prediction was correct. London also correctly estimated the rise of Japan as a superpower with an eye on China. What is also accurate was London's portrayal of a world order that took it upon itself to determine that China was too populated and too militarized, and therefore posed a danger for that reason. Not bad for an adventure writer. I hope you enjoy this story, written in 1910, by Jack London. And now our story, Jack London's The Unparalleled Invasion. It was in the year nineteen seventy six that the trouble between the world and China reached its culmination. It was because of this that the celebration of the second centennial of American liberty was deferred. Many other plans of the nations of the earth were twisted and tangled and postponed for the same reason. The world awoke rather abruptly to its danger, but for over seventy years, unperceived, affairs had been shaping toward this very end. The year 1904 logically marks the beginning of the development that, 70 years later, was to bring consternation to the whole world. The Japanese-Russian War took place in 1904, and the historians of the time gravely noted it down that that event marked the entrance of Japan into the comedy of Nations. What it really did mark was the awakening of China. This awakening, long expected, had finally been given up. The Western nations had tried to arouse China, and they had failed. Out of their native optimism and race egotism, they had therefore concluded that the task was impossible, that China would never awaken. What they had failed to take into account was this, that between them and China was no common psychological speech. Their thought processes were radically dissimilar. There was no intimate vocabulary. The Western mind penetrated the Chinese mind but a short distance when it found itself in a fathomless maze. The Chinese mind penetrated the Western mind an equally short distance when it fetched up against a blank, incomprehensible wall. It was all a matter of language. There was no way to communicate Western ideas to the Chinese mind. China remained asleep. The material achievement and progress of the West was a closed book to her nor could the West open the book. Back and deep down on the Thai ribs of consciousness, in the mind, say, of the English-speaking race, was a capacity to thrill to short, Saxon words. Back and deep down on the Thai ribs of consciousness of the Chinese mind was a capacity to thrill to its own hieroglyphics. But the Chinese mind could not thrill to short, Saxon words, nor could the English-speaking mind thrill to hieroglyphics. The fabrics of their minds were woven from totally different stuffs. They were mental aliens, and so it was that Western material achievement and progress made no dent on the rounded sleep of China. Came Japan and her victory over Russia in 1904. Now the Japanese race was the freak and paradox among Eastern peoples. In some strange way, Japan was receptive to all the West had to offer. Japan swiftly assimilated the Western ideas, and digested them, and so capably applied them that she suddenly burst forth, full panoplied, a world power. There is no explaining this particular openness of Japan to the alien culture of the West, as well might be explained any biological sport in the animal kingdom. Having decisively thrashed the great Russian Empire, Japan promptly set about dreaming a colossal dream of empire for herself. Korea she had made into a granary and a colony. Treaty privileges and Volpine diplomacy gave her the monopoly of Manchuria. But Japan was not satisfied. She turned her eyes upon China. There lay a vast territory, and in that territory were the hugest deposits in the world of iron and coal, the backbone of industrial civilization. Given natural resources, the other great factor in industry is labor. In that territory was a population of 400 million souls, one-quarter of the then total population of the earth. Furthermore, the Chinese were excellent workers, while their fatalistic philosophy, or religion, and their stolid nervous organization constituted them splendid soldiers, if they were properly managed. Needless to say, Japan was prepared to furnish that management. But best of all, from the standpoint of Japan, the Chinese was a kindred race, the baffling enigma of the Chinese character to the West was no baffling enigma to the Japanese. The Japanese understood as we could never school ourselves or hope to understand. Their mental processes were the same. The Japanese thought with the same thought symbols as did the Chinese, and they thought in the same peculiar grooves. Into the Chinese mind the Japanese went on where we were balked by the obstacle of incomprehension. They took the turning which we could not perceive, twisted around the obstacle, and were out of sight in the ramifications of the Chinese mind where we could not follow. They were brothers. Long ago one had borrowed the other's written language, and, untold generations before that, they had diverged from the same common Mongol stock. There had been changes, differentiations brought about by diverse conditions and infusions of other blood, but down at the bottom of their beans, twisted into the fibers of them, was a heritage in common, a sameness in kind, that time had not obliterated. And so Japan took upon herself the management of China. In the years immediately following the war with Russia, her agents swarmed over the Chinese Empire. A thousand miles beyond the last mission station toiled her engineers and spies, clad as coolies, under the guise of itinerant merchants or proselytizing Buddhist priests, noting down the horsepower of every waterfall, the likely sites for factories, the heights of mountains and passes, the strategic advantages and weaknesses, the wealth of the farming valleys, the number of bullocks in a district, or the number of laborers that could be collected by forced levies. Never was there such a census, and it could have been taken by no other people than the dogged, patient, patriotic, Japanese—
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: And now we return to The Unparalleled Invasion by Jack London. But in a short time, secrecy was thrown to the winds. Japan's officers reorganized the Chinese army. Her drill sergeants made the medieval warriors over into 20th century soldiers accustomed to all the modern machinery of war and with a higher average of marksmanship than the soldiers of any western nation. The engineers of Japan deepened and widened the intricate system of canals, built factories and foundries, netted the empire with telegraphs and telephones, and inaugurated the era of railroad building. It was these same protagonists of machine civilization that discovered the great oil deposits of San, the Iron Mountains of Wang Sing, the copper ranges of Chinchi, and they sank the gas wells of Waohi, that most marvelous reservoir of natural gas in all the world. In China's councils of empire were the Japanese emissaries. In the ears of the statesmen whispered the Japanese statesmen, the political reconstruction of the empire was due to them. They evicted the scholar class, which was violently reactionary, and put into office progressive officials, And in every town and city of the empire, newspapers were started. Of course, Japanese editors ran the policy of these papers, which policy they got direct from Tokyo. It was these papers that educated and made progressive the great mass of the Chinese population. China was at last awake. Where the West had failed, Japan succeeded. She had transmuted Western culture and achievement into terms that were intelligible to the Chinese understanding. Japan herself, when she so suddenly awakened, had astounded the world. But at the time, she was only forty million strong. China's awakening, with her four hundred millions and the scientific advance of the world, was frightfully astounding. She was the colossus of the nations, and swiftly her voice was heard in no uncertain tones in the affairs and councils of the nations. Japan egged her on, and the proud Western peoples listened with respectful ears. "'China's swift and remarkable rise was due, "'perhaps more than to anything else, "'to the superlative quality of her labor. "'The China man was the perfect type of industry. "'He had always been that. "'For sheer ability to work, "'no worker in the world could compare with him. "'Work was the breadth of his nostrils. "'It was to him what wandering and fighting in far lands "'and spiritual adventure had been to other peoples. "'Liberty, to him, epitomized itself "'in access to the means of toil.' To till the soil and labor interminably was all he asked of life and the powers that be. And the awakening of China had given its vast population not merely free and unlimited access to the means of toil, but access to the highest and most scientific machine means of toil. China rejuvenescent. It was but a step to China rampant. She discovered a new pride in herself and a will of her own. She began to shape under the guidance of Japan. "'but she did not shave long. "'On Japan's advice, in the beginning, "'she had expelled from the empire "'all Western missionaries, engineers, "'drill sergeants, merchants, and teachers. "'She now began to expel "'the similar representatives of Japan. "'The latter's advisory statesmen "'were showered with honors and decorations "'and sent home. "'The West had awakened Japan, "'and, as Japan had then requited the West, "'Japan was not requited by China.' "'Japan was thanked for her kindly aid "'and flung out bag and baggage by her gigantic protégé. "'The Western nations chuckled. "'Japan's rainbow dream had gone glimmering. "'She grew angry. "'China laughed at her. "'The blood and the swords of the samurai went out, "'and Japan rashly went to war. "'This occurred in 1922, "'and in seven bloody months Manchuria, Korea, and Formosa "'were taken away from her, and she was hurled back, bankrupt, to stifle in her tiny, crowded islands. Exit Japan from the world drama. Thereafter, she devoted herself to art, and her task became to please the world greatly with her creations of wonder and beauty. Contrary to expectation, China did not prove warlike. She had no Napoleonic dream, and was content to devote herself to the arts of peace. After a time of disquiet, The idea was accepted that China was to be feared, not in war, but in commerce. It will be seen that the real danger was not apprehended. China went on consummating her machine civilization. Instead of a large standing army, she developed an immensely larger and splendidly efficient militia. Her navy was so small that it was the laughingstock of the world, nor did she attempt to strengthen her navy. The treaty ports of the world were never entered by her visiting battleships. The real danger lay in the fecundity of her loins, and it was in 1970 that the first cry of alarm was raised. For some time, all territories adjacent to China had been grumbling at Chinese immigration, but now it suddenly came home to the world that China's population was 500 million. She had increased by 100 millions since her awakening. Burkhalder called attention to the fact that there were more Chinese in existence than white people. He performed a simple sum in arithmetic, He added together the populations of the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, England, France, Germany, Italy, Austria, European Russia, and all Scandinavia. The result was 495 million, and the population of China overtopped this tremendous total by 5 million. Burkholder's figures went round the world, and the world shivered. For many centuries China's population had been constant. Her territory had been saturated with population. That is to say, her territory, with the primitive method of production, had supported the maximum limit of population. But when she awoke and inaugurated the machine civilization, her productive power had been enormously increased. Thus, on the same territory, she was able to support a far larger population." At once the birth rate began to rise and the death rate to fall. Before, when population pressed against the means of subsistence, the excess population had been swept away by famine. But now, thanks to the machine civilization, Chinese means of subsistence had been enormously extended, and there were no famines. Her population followed on the heels of the increase in the means of subsistence. During this time of transition and development of power, China had entertained no dreams of conquest. The Chinese was not an imperial race. It was industrious, thrifty, and peace-loving. War was looked upon as an unpleasant but necessary task that at times must be performed. And so, while the Western races had squabbled and fought and world-adventured against one another, China had calmly gone on working at her machines and growing. Now she was spilling over the boundaries of her empire. That was all just spilling over into the adjacent territories with all the certainty and terrifying slow momentum of a glacier. Following upon the alarm raised by Calder's figures, in 1970, France made a long threatened stand. French Indochina had been overrun, filled up by Chinese immigrants. France called a halt. The Chinese wave flowed on. France assembled a force of 100,000 on the boundary between her unfortunate colony and China. "'and China sent down an army of militia soldiers a million strong. "'Behind came the wives and sons and daughters and relatives "'with their personal household luggage in a second army. "'The French force was brushed aside like a fly. "'The Chinese militia soldiers, along with their families, "'over five millions all told, "'coolly took possession of French Indochina "'and settled down to stay for a few thousand years. "'Outraged, France was in arms.' She hurled fleet after fleet against the coast of China, and nearly bankrupted herself by the effort. China had no navy. She withdrew like a turtle into her shell. For a year the French fleets blockaded the coast and bombarded exposed towns and villages. China did not mind. She did not depend upon the rest of the world for anything. She calmly kept out of range of the French guns and went on working. France wept and wailed, wrung her impotent hands and appealed to the dumbfounded nations. Then she landed a punitive expedition to march to Peking. It was 250,000 strong, and it was the flower of France. It landed without opposition and marched into the interior. And that was the last ever seen of it. The line of communication was snapped on the second day. Not a survivor came back to tell what had happened. It had been swallowed up in China's cavernous maw. That was all. In the five years that followed, China's expansion, in all land directions, went on apace. Siam was made part of the empire, and in spite of all that England could do, Burma and the Malay Peninsula were overrun, while all along the long south boundary of Siberia, Russia was pressed severely by China's advancing hordes. The process was simple. First came the Chinese immigration, or rather it was already there, having come there slowly and insidiously during the previous years. Next came the clash of arms and the brushing away of all opposition by a monster army of militia soldiers, followed by their families and household baggage. And finally came their settling down as colonists in the conquered territory. Never was there so strange and effective a method of world conquest. Nepal and Bhutan were overrun, and the whole northern boundary of India pressed against by this fearful tide of life. To the west, Bokhara, and even to the south and west, Afghanistan, were swallowed up. Persia, Turkestan, and all Central Asia felt the pressure of the flood. It was at this time that Burkhalder revised his figures. He had been mistaken. China's population must be seven hundred millions, eight hundred millions. Nobody knew how many millions. But at any rate, it would soon be a billion. There were two Chinese for every white-skinned human in the world, Burkhalder announced, and the world trembled. "'China's increase must have begun immediately, in 1904. "'It was remembered that since that date "'there had not been a single famine. "'At five million a year increase, "'her total increase in the intervening seventy years "'must be three hundred and fifty million. "'But who is to know? "'It might be more. "'Who is to know anything of this strange new menace "'of the twentieth century? "'China, old China, rejuvenescent, fruitful, and militant.' The Convention of 1975 was called at Philadelphia. All the Western nations, and some few of the Eastern, were represented. Nothing was accomplished. There was talk of all countries putting bounties on children to increase the birth rate, but it was laughed to scorn by the arithmeticians who pointed out that China was too far in the lead in that direction. No feasible way of coping with China was suggested. China was appealed to and threatened by the United Powers. And that was all the Convention of Philadelphia came to. And the Convention and the powers were laughed at by China. Li Tang Fuang, the power behind Dragon Throne, designed to reply. "'What does China care for the comity of nations?' said Li Tang Fuang. "'We are the most ancient, honorable, and royal of races. We have our own destiny to accomplish. It is unpleasant that our destiny does not tally with the destiny of the rest of the world.' "'But what would you? "'You have talked windily about the royal races "'and the heritage of the earth, "'and we can only reply that that remains to be seen. "'You cannot invade us. "'Never mind about your navies. "'Don't shout. "'We know our navy is small. "'You see we use it for police purposes. "'We do not care for the sea. "'Our strength is in our population, "'which will soon be a billion. "'Thanks to you, "'we are equipped with all modern war machinery.' "'Send your navies. We will not notice them. "'Send your punitive expeditions. "'But first remember what happened to France. "'To land half a million soldiers on our shores "'would strain the resources of any of you. "'And our thousand millions would swallow them down in a mouthful. "'Send a million, send five millions, "'and we will swallow them down just as readily. "'Poof! A mere nothing, a meager morsel.' Destroy as you have threatened, you United States, the ten million coolies we have forced upon your shores. Why, the amount scarcely equals half of her excess birth rate for a year. So spoke Li Tang P'uang. The world was nonplussed, helpless, terrified. Truly had he spoken. There was no combating China's amazing birth rate. If her population was a billion and was increasing twenty millions a year. "'In twenty-five years, it would be a billion and a half, "'equal to the total population of the world in 1904. "'And nothing could be done. "'There was no way to dam up the overspilling, monstrous flood of life. "'War was futile. "'China laughed at a blockade of her coasts. "'She welcomed invasion. "'And her capacious maw was room for all the hosts of earth "'that could be hurled at her. "'And in the meantime, her flood of yellow life poured out and on over Asia.' China laughed and read in their magazines the learned lucubrations of the distracted Western scholars. But there was one scholar China failed to reckon on Jacobus Lanningdale. Not that he was a scholar, except in the widest sense. Primarily, Jacobus Lanningdale was a scientist, and up to that time a very obscure scientist, a professor employed in the laboratories of the Health Office of New York City. Jacobus Lanningdale's head was very like any other head. "'But in that head was evolved an idea. "'Also in that head was the wisdom to keep that idea secret. "'He did not write an article for the magazines. "'Instead he asked for a vacation. "'On September 19, 1975, he arrived in Washington. "'It was evening, but he proceeded straight to the White House, "'for he had already arranged an audience with the President. "'He was closeted with President Moyer for three hours.' What passed between them was not learned by the rest of the world until long after. In fact, at that time the world was not interested in Jacobus Lanningdale. Next day the President called in his cabinet. Jacobus Lanningdale was present. Their proceedings were kept secret. But that very afternoon Rufus Cowdery, Secretary of State, left Washington, and early the following morning sailed for England. The secret that he carried began to spread— "'but it spread only among the heads of governments. "'Possibly half a dozen men in a nation "'were entrusted with the idea "'that had formed in Jacobus Lanningdale's head. "'Following the spread of the secret "'sprang up great activity in all the dockyards, "'arsenals, and navy yards. "'The people of France and Austria became suspicious, "'but so sincere were their government's calls for confidence "'that they acquiesced in the unknown project that was afoot. "'This was the time of the great truce,' All countries pledged themselves solemnly not to go to war with any other country. The first definite action was the gradual mobilization of the armies of Russia, Germany, Austria, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. Then began the eastward movement. All railroads into Asia were glutted with troop trains. China was the objective. That was all that was known. A little later began the Great Sea Movement. Expeditions of warships were launched from all countries. Fleet followed fleet, and all proceeded to the coast of China. The nations cleaned out their navy yards. They sent their revenue cutters and dispatch boats and lighthouse tenders, and they sent their last antiquated cruisers and battleships. Not content with this, they impressed the merchant marine. The statistics show that 58,640 merchant steamers, equipped with searchlights and rapid-fire guns, were dispatched by the various nations to China. AND CHINA SMILED AND WAITED. ON HER LAND SIDE, ALONG HER BOUNDARIES, WERE MILLIONS OF THE WARRIORS OF EUROPE. SHE MOBILIZED FIVE TIMES AS MANY MILLIONS OF HER MILITIA AND awaited THE INVASION. ON HER SEA COASTS, SHE DID THE SAME. BUT CHINA WAS PUZZLED. AFTER ALL THIS ENORMOUS PREPARATION, THERE WAS NO INVASION. SHE COULD NOT UNDERSTAND. ALONG THE GREAT SIBERIAN FRONTIER, ALL WAS QUIET. Along her coasts, the towns and villages were not even shelled. Never in the history of the world had there been so mighty a gathering of war fleets. The fleets of all the world were there, and day and night millions of tons of battleships plowed the brine of her coasts, and nothing happened. Nothing was attempted. Did they think to make her emerge from her shell? China smiled. Did they think to tire her out or starve her out? China smiled again. But on May 1st, 1976, had the reader been in the imperial city of Peking, with its then population of 11 millions, he would have witnessed a curious sight. He would have seen the streets filled with the chattering yellow populace. And high up in the blue, he would have beheld a tiny dot of black, which, because of its orderly evolutions, he would have identified as an airship. From this airship as it curved its flight back and forth over the city, fell missiles, strange, harmless missiles, tubes of fragile glass that shattered into thousands of fragments on the streets and housetops. But there was nothing deadly about these tubes of glass. Nothing happened. There were no explosions. It is true, three Chinese were killed by the tubes dropping on their heads from so enormous a height. But what were three Chinese against an excess birth rate of twenty millions? One tube struck perpendicularly in a fish-pond in a garden and was not broken. It was dragged ashore by the master of the house. He did not dare to open it, but, accompanied by his friends, and surrounded by an ever-increasing crowd, he carried the mysterious tube to the magistrate of the district. The latter was a brave man. With all eyes upon him, he shattered the tube with a blow from his brass-bowled pipe. Nothing happened. Of those who were very near. One or two thought they saw some mosquitoes fly out. That was all. The crowd set up a great laugh and dispersed. As Peking was bombarded by glass tubes, so was all China. The tiny airships, dispatched from the warships, contained but two men each, and over all cities, towns, and villages they wheeled and curved, one man directing the ship, the other man throwing over the glass tubes." Had the reader again been in Pekin, six weeks later, he would have looked in vain for the eleven million inhabitants. Some few of them he would have found, a few hundred thousand, perhaps, their carcasses festering in the houses and in the deserted streets, and piled high on the abandoned death wagons. But for the rest he would have had to seek along the highways and byways of the empire. And not all would he have found clean from plague-stricken Pekin, for behind them— "'by hundreds of thousands of unburied corpses by the wayside, "'he could have marked their flight. "'And as it was with Peking, "'so it was with all the cities, towns, and villages of the Empire. "'The plague smote them all. "'Nor was it one plague, nor two plagues. "'It was a score of plagues. "'Every virulent form of infectious death stalked through the land. "'Too late the Chinese government apprehended "'the meaning of the colossal preparations.' the marshalling of the world hosts, the flights of the tin airships, and the rain of the tubes of glass. The proclamations of the government were vain. They could not stop the eleven million plague-stricken wretches fleeing from the one city of Peking to spread disease through all the land. The physicians and health officers died at their posts, and death, the all-conqueror, rode over the decrees of the Emperor and Li-Tang Vuong. It rode over them as well, for Li Tang Fung died in the second week, and the emperor, hidden away in the summer palace, died in the fourth week. Had there been one plague, China might have coped with it, but from a score of plagues, no creature was immune. The man who escaped smallpox went down before scarlet fever. The man who was immune to yellow fever was carried away by cholera, and if he was immune to that too, the black death, which was the bubonic plague, swept him away. FOR IT WAS THESE BACTERIA AND GERMS AND MICROBES AND BACILLI, CULTURED IN THE LABORATORIES OF THE WEST, THAT HAD COME DOWN UPON CHINA IN THE RAIN OF GLASS. ALL ORGANIZATION VANISHED. THE GOVERNMENT CRUMBLED AWAY. DECREES AND PROCLAMATIONS WERE USELESS WHEN THE MEN WHO MADE THEM AND SIGNED THEM ONE MOMENT WERE DEAD THE NEXT. NOR COULD THE MADDENED MILLIONS, SPURRED ON TO FLIGHT BY DEATH, PAUSE TO HEED ANYTHING. They fled from the cities to infect the country, and wherever they fled they carried the plagues with them. The hot summer was on. Jacobus Lanningdale had selected the time shrewdly, and the plague festered everywhere. Much is conjectured of what occurred, and much has been learned from the stories of the few survivors. The wretched creatures stormed across the empire in many millioned flight. The vast armies China had collected on her frontiers melted away. The farms were ravaged for food, and no more crops were planted, while the crops already in were left unattended, and never came to harvest. The most remarkable thing, perhaps, was the flights. Many millions engaged in them, charging to the bounds of the empire to be met and turned back by the gigantic armies of the West. The slaughter of the mad hosts on the boundaries was stupendous. Time and again the guarding line was drawn back twenty or thirty miles to escape the contagion of the multitudinous dead. Once the plague broke through and seized upon the German and Austrian soldiers who were guarding the borders of Turkestan. Preparations had been made for such a happening, and though sixty thousand soldiers of Europe were carried off, the international corps of the physicians isolated the contagion and damned it back. It was during the struggle that it was suggested that a new plague germ had originated, that in some way or other. A sort of hybridization between plague germs had taken place, producing a new and frightfully virulent germ. First suspected by Bomberg, who became infected with it and died, it was later isolated and studied by Stevens, Hazenfeld, Norman, and Landers. Such was the unparalleled invasion of China. For that billion of people, there was no hope. Pent in their vast and festering charnel-house, all organization and cohesion lost, They could do naught but die. They could not escape. As they were flung back from their land frontiers, so were they flung back from the sea. Seventy-five thousand vessels patrolled the coasts. By day their smoking funnels dimmed the sea rim, and by night their flashing searchlights plowed the dark and harrowed it for the tiniest escaping junk. The attempts of the immense fleets of junks were pitiful. Not one ever got by the guarding sea hounds. Modern war machinery held back the disorganized mass of China, while the plagues did the work. But old war was made a thing of laughter; not remained to him but patrol duty. China had laughed at war, and war she was getting, but it was ultra modern war, twentieth century war, the war of the scientist and the laboratory, the war of Jacobus Lanningdale. Hundred-ton guns were toys. Compared with the microorganic projectiles hurled from the laboratories, the messengers of death, the destroying angels that stalked to the empire of a billion souls. During all the summer and fall of 1976, China was an inferno. There was no eluding the microscopic projectiles that sought out the remotest hiding places. The hundreds of millions of dead remained unburied, and the germs multiplied themselves, and, toward the last, Millions died daily of starvation. Besides, starvation weakened the victims and destroyed their natural defenses against the plagues. Cannibalism, murder, and madness reigned. And so perished China. Not until the following February, in the coldest weather, were the first expeditions made. These expeditions were small, composed of scientists and bodies of troops, but they entered China from every side. In spite of the most elaborate precautions against infection, numbers of soldiers and a few of the physicians were stricken. But the exploration went bravely on. They found China devastated, a howling wilderness through which wandered bands of wild dogs and desperate bandits who had survived. All survivors were put to death wherever found. And then began the great task, the sanitation of China, Five years and hundreds of millions of treasure were consumed, and then the world moved in, not in zones as was the idea of Baron Albrecht, but heterogeneously, according to the Democratic American Program. It was a vast and happy intermingling of nationalities that settled down in China in 1982 and the years that followed. A tremendous and successful experiment in cross-fertilization. We know today the splendid mechanical, intellectual, intellectual, an art output that followed. It was in 1987, the great truce having been dissolved, and the ancient quarrel between France and Germany over Alsace-Lorraine recrudesced. The war cloud grew dark and threatening in April, and on April 17th the Convention of Copenhagen was called. The representatives of the nations of the world, being present, all nations solemnly pledged themselves never to use against one another, the laboratory methods of warfare they had employed in the invasion of China. Excerpt from Walt Mervyn's Certain Essays in History This science fiction piece offered by Jack London in 1906 in McClure's Magazine. We hope you enjoyed this very unusual and very prescient story. We always appreciate reviews at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, so please don't hesitate if you enjoyed this story or others. And don't hesitate to share our stories with others as well. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.